0: recovery elevator episode 331
1: community is it's so important i think just trying to connect wh- whether it's with ourselves with our source energy with other people all of those things do get disconnected along um along the journey in addiction and so reconnecting to the world to other people to yourself into source energy is a really important piece of recovery
2: life as always
0: Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Kermit the Frog. I'm just kidding, guys. What is up? Paul Churchill here with the Recovery Elevator Podcast. It is absolutely fantastic to be here with you all again. It's been about 20 years since I busted out the Kermit the Frog impression. used to be a drunk trick of mine. And I said, you know what? It's time to bring him back. On today's podcast, we've got Laura. She's from Austin, Texas, and took her last drink on September 16th, 2019. Listeners, I am pumped to be here right now. Uh, But before we get any further, let's get some housekeeping things out of the way. We have our Restore alcohol free course. Registration is now open. Restore is our 13 session alcohol free dry July course for those who have reached the decision that alcohol needs to go. 75 minute sessions are monday thursday and sunday connect with others in small whatsapp groups with daily discussion prompts and coursework assigned twice per week course topics include calming the mind building accountability dealing with intense emotions how to have fun without alcohol addressing unhealthy thoughts sound healing af beverages and more This course is excellent for someone who is still on day one or within their first year away from alcohol. Registration is open. You can go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash restore. I'm teaching a bulk of the sessions, but we've also got incredible instructors as well. My man, Patrick Foley and Odette will be teaching a course night also. Okay. It's great to be back with you. And that's not a canned line. I missed you all. Every single one of you. It was nice to have a break we all need them teachers get summer breaks they deserve breaks more than anyone thank you educators but it didn't take long during this podcasting repose to notice myself podcasting out loud on hikes and road trips creating monologues with information resources tips tricks experiences to share with all of you we've got an incredible lineup of topics and guests for season three and before i get any further I want to give a massive shout out to Odette for giving me the time off, for allowing me to focus on myself and to work on other areas of Recovery Elevator. I feel I'm more dedicated and energized to this project now more than ever, and I have Odette to thank, and I want to thank all of you for giving Odette a chance. Change is hard. We all know that, and you all welcomed her with open ears. Let me take a moment to share what this AF rock star Odette did for RE and the AF movement. So let's talk about stats for a second. I want to mention that here at RE, we don't care too much about the stats or download numbers, but they are a barometer and she did some incredible things. She took us from 5 million downloads to 6.5. She broke my daily record of 10,000 downloads. I know it hurts. It does. But I'm so happy for her as well. In fact, on that day when she broke the record, I was still in charge of uploading the podcast to our podcasting hosting service. Um, Just forgot to do it. And so she figured out how to upload the podcast about three or four hours later, and she still broke the record. So for clarity purposes, I'm going to come out now and say it. She has the record, but she would have crushed it. Odette took us to a new monthly download record of over 150,000 listens. That's over 8 million minutes of listening time per month. Now, here's the impressive part. All of this took place when podcast listenership dipped 30% for all podcasts across the board. The main reason for this is because commutes and routines were shattered due to the pana, panacea? Panda, pandemonium? Pandemic. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I'm kidding there. And then on top of that, many listeners, and we saw this in all types of inboxes, said, Nope. Now's not the time to quit drinking. You're telling me I need to quarantine, stay in my condo, my apartment, my high-rise, whatever, and do it all without my friend alcohol? Get out of town. Guys, no judgment here. We get it. So I estimate we saw about a 40% dip in downloads. But then there was Odette, who with her whimsical and honest topics held the boat afloat, headed in the direction of wholeness, fearlessly navigating gale force winds. Yep, this is another ship analogy. If you can't tell, we like those here. And then let's talk about content. A neat thing happened for me. I tuned to the RE podcast as a listener on Mondays. Not all of my days off were filled with maple donuts and Costa Rican sunsets. So the RE podcast gave me the inspiration when I needed it most. I personally had some difficult times during the pandemic. If some of the interviewees are listening right now, I want to say thank you for helping me on my journey. Odette held nothing back. She showed us how to be honest, vulnerable, how to be open to new ideas, and dropped no shortage of value bombs. Time has its own timeline, is probably my favorite. She brings a completely new perspective to saying adios to the booze. She's helped me realize my relationship with food is somewhat out of balance. This part of the intro could go on forever, but I want to say thank you, Odette, You have given me so many gifts. So here's the plan for today. I wanna cover the plan for season three, give you a quick update of what I've been up to, and I also wanna introduce myself since some of you are saying, who the hell is this Paul guy, and where's my girl Odette? Okay, so what's up season three? Here's the plan. Season three will consist of 52 episodes, or about the same amount of time it takes for the Earth to roll around the sun. I'll be doing 46 intros, and Odette will do six. In other words, she'll be doing every eighth intro. With the interviews, and this is exciting, Odette and Chris, and Chris, you can hear his story on episode 175 and 278, the two of them will be doing the interviews. Y'all are going to love Chris. He'll be doing one interview every month, so that's one out of four. So for all of you who are going, hooray, awesome, And for those of you who are saying, damn it, I don't want it that way, two things. If you take out the word don't, you have the best boy band song of all time. And two, give it a chance. Change is inevitable and change is healthy. What's up, Ty? And I wanna give a shout out to Liz, who is a volunteer and does show notes for every episode. Liz, we're so glad to have you. So here's a quick recap of what I've been up to. During quarantine, I learned German, Whittled a patio set out of beechwood. I learned Taekwondo. I can play Pachelbel, Canon, and D major and D minor on the piano, harp, and oboe. And I also mastered mindfulness and meditation. Ha, I'm just kidding, none of that is true. Oftentimes it's our barometer or perception of what success is that gets us into trouble. Um, but let's let's get to the basics. Up until this moment, I've survived COVID, despite having it twice. And not everyone did survive. The world has lost nearly 4 million people, uh, which is why we're gonna take a quick moment of silence. 4 million people. That's slightly more than the amount that alcohol kills each year. So it's safe to say that the COVID, the pandemic, was more dangerous than alcohol by, by the numbers but we'll see what role alcohol will will play in the future after the pandemic as people have to deal with uh, the isolation and the psychological repercussions of that. Okay. Perhaps what I'm most proud of is I now have almost 2,500 days away from alcohol. September 6th, 2014 was the date of my last drink. Over the last year, I rekindled my passion for coaching football. What's up, Battle Mountain Huskies? And I'll be coaching this fall at the Bozeman High School. Go Hawks! I picked up the skateboard again. Along with that, a couple of urgent care visits, but no broken bones. And I can drop in on the vertical part of the pool. Ever since I was 10 years old when my parents rented out a skateboard park for my birthday, that was a goal of mine. And I got it. Even after falling 14 feet into the bottom of a cement pool twice i learned how to stretch almost an hour a night for probably eight months i lightened up on myself with recovery elevator the re team has expanded and they are kicking major ass we had our first ditching the booze course which is for cafe re members and the restore course which is open to everyone we now have merch on the re website thank you so much stephanie we have over 70 chats a month in cafe re This past March, I put an offer in at a five-acre retreat facility in Costa Rica. The offer was accepted, but it fell through during financing, which was a bummer. But if and when it's supposed to happen, it'll happen. I want to mention, if your pandemic experience consisted of constant day ones, and you feel like you've lost all hope, keep in mind that you still made progress. For starters, you've survived. Again, not everyone did. Not everybody can say that. Life will give you whatever experience is most beneficial to the advancement of your consciousness. And I want to add, you're not the only one who struggle. The pandemic took its toll mentally on everyone. And when this pandemic fades away as yet another chapter in human history, the true pandemic, which was already here before, this is addiction, mental health, anxiety, and depression, will resume its place at the top of the list of what needs to be addressed ASAP. People need healing now more than ever. Now, we set out to make RE a safe place for just that, and I hope you find healing in this podcast or Cafe RE. Many have, including myself. Before I decided to return for season three, I needed to ask myself a question, which was why was I coming back? And I didn't have to think long before the answer clearly came to me. But before I share the answer with you, I want to loop you in on my journey prior to my last drink at September of 2014. And for some, this is a condensed introduction of who I am, since I may be a new voice for listeners. I was a normal drinker for about seven years until I moved to Spain at age 23 and bought a bar. My morning routine for the last year of that at age 26 was a box of wine at 6am and two warm beers. I found I could drink beers faster when they were microwaved. I was so sick and in rough shape. I then decided to quit on January 1st, 2010, and that lasted two and a half years. I was what they called a dry drunk. My plan was only to not drink. I was looking at a life without alcohol as a sacrifice and not opportunity. So in 2014, shit got real. In April of that year, I showed up to a high school trip in Peru as a chaperone, drunk. In May that year, on a houseboat, I secretly drank over 100 beers. Well, it was a secret till everyone realized they were out of beer three days before the trip ended. I was not their favorite person. I worked that summer at a crisis mental health facility and there were so many days where I had the conversation with myself before clocking in, I would say, goodness gracious, I need a bed. I need to check myself in. In July that year, I got a DUI while driving to work and spent the night in a suicide-proof jail cell. A couple weeks later, I had a failed suicide attempt. That same year, I was a captain of a dodgeball team, and I was informed later that I gave a full two-minute pump-up speech fully blacked out. For most of that summer, I couldn't remember if I fed my dog Ben or not each morning. There was so much shame. In late August, I drove to a wedding drunk, With a broken taillight and knew there was no chance i was going to pull off that wedding in fact i had to cover up one eye with my hand while trying to pick the correct processional song for the bride to walk down the aisle i was actively trying to quit drinking every single day that spring and summer there were so many day ones in a row it was demoralizing i was hopeless i was so sick I've never used that word to describe myself or my journey, but it's accurate. I was sick mentally, physically, and spiritually, I was dead. For those of you who seem to be back on day one over and over, I feel your pain. I got your back and I'd never dog you guys. So I was sick. I was sick well into recovery in some aspects of my life. In fact, I'm still healing parts of my personality. They're calling for attention due to imbalances. I'm not perfect. I've made plenty of mistakes along the way while doing recovery elevator. And I can guarantee you that I'm going to make plenty more. So back to why I'm doing this. I do this because when somebody breaks the cycle, lifts the needle of consciousness and begins to write a new narrative, it fills me up. And then to see that same person, Assist someone else on their journey away from alcohol is equally as satisfying. That's the reason. It's simple One more thing before I conclude I've always said there's no right or wrong way to do this to ditching the booze and I firmly believe this But please don't take my word for it or Odette's try this stuff out for yourself Do your own research do the work you guys are gonna be just fine and keep moving forward So before we hear from Odette and Laura, let's hear from Cafe RE. And again,
3: guys, I'm so excited to be here with you. For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. At Café RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With supportive and educational webinars hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Café RE is a place where we grow and learn together. And with Golden Rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online webinars, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there.
4: Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Laura to the podcast. Laura, welcome. How are you today? Hello, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for coming on the show. And let's get right to it, Laura. When was the last time you had a drink? My last drink was on September 16th of 2019. September 16th of 2019. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really great. I
1: mean, it's shifting from day to day. still even 18 months in trying to kind of figure out what it's like to have a sober life because I drank
4: for such a long time.
1: So there's ups and downs for sure. But I'm present for all of it. And I'm grateful for
4: all of it. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself, Laura? Can you let us know where you're from? What do you do for a living? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun?
1: Sure. So I am in Austin, Texas. I own a spa in South Austin where I do body work and energy work. I'm also working with a new business called Supernatural Recovery where I work with other people in recovery. I am a single mom. I have an eight-year-old little girl who is amazing and for fun, I love to be outside. I love hiking and swimming. I love yoga. And I've also gotten really into meditation and doing you know, different types of meditation, like kundalini and learning a lot about Buddhism and things like that, too.
4: I'm also seeing here on your Skype profile picture that you have pink hair. So you are fun from a first glance.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you.
4: Well, thanks, Laura. And can you let us know your background with drinking. Just tell us about your story with alcohol, your relationship with alcohol. When did you start? When did you realize alcohol wasn't serving you? And what got you to be on the show? What got you to quit and be on this path?
1: Sure. So I grew up around alcohol. I grew up in an alcoholic, abusive family. I never really wanted to drink because I saw the way that you know my parents would act when they would drink, and I thought, oh, they're so silly. But I did start smoking pot and doing other drugs at a pretty early age, and I was about 14. And so I was actually doing uh, smoking pot pretty regularly and also taking LSD pretty regularly at an early age. When I was 16, I was on LSD, and I was raped. And shortly after that, I started having really bad panic attacks. And I started drinking as a means to sort of cope with these panic attacks because of that experience. So unfortunately, shortly after that, I was targeted by a psychopath and I fell into a relationship where I was imprisoned and tortured and sexually abused for a few years. During that time, I was also using alcohol as a means to really deliberately disconnect from my experience. So that's really like how it started, you know, not, not under like really fun party circumstances, but I sort of always used it as a, as a means to deal with panic or deal with uh, trauma or deal with traumatic circumstances. So I was able to escape from uh, my abuser when I was 18 and I went uh, to college and that's when I started showing signs of uh, really severe post-traumatic stress. And again, I was like continued drinking to kind of, you know, cope with all of that. I did spend some time in a in a hospital, which sort of got me stable enough that I could continue with my life in a more functioning way. But I did continue to drink for the next 20 years. And as things go, when you're drinking, I mean, it was just sort of on this seesaw. Of, you know, I would be stable and functionally drinking and then not functionally drinking sort of back and forth for a really long time. And then, you know, people talk about like a rock bottom moment. And I I didn't really have one of those. For me, rock bottom was more of a place where I lived for a couple of years. And so the last couple of years were pretty rough. And then I was finally, you know, able to, I had a lot of false starts, but I was finally able to quit for good on September 16th of 2019.
4: Well, I love that you said rock bottom was a place that I lived in for a couple of years. And you know, I want to share you shared a lot of raw, vulnerable moments of your journey. Like you said, it's all part of your journey. But that's a lot. And uh, I'm really glad that we're sharing your journey here, because it is a little bit unique, you know, for a lot of people who come on the show, including myself, it starts more of something social or alcohol is more of this social lubricant. And it is serving a purpose. But for you, straight out of the Straight out of the gates, like you said, it was something that was just a numbing agent from the get-go. And then it's a different path that I think what we commonly hear. So thanks. I mean, thanks for your vulnerability. And with you going to alcohol, I know you mentioned you come from with alcohol being in your family and you kind of wanting to not drink at first. When you did start using it, what was your dialogue internally of, well, I said I wasn't going to do this and now I am?
1: I think I just, I mean, I definitely remember having a moment where I recognized that if I was drunk enough, then I wasn't, my nervous system was not able to have a panic attack. And I was just really young. And so I was like, well, I guess we're going to go with this. (laughs) And it was one of those things where I am not even sure, like when I had my exact first drink. I'm sure maybe I tinkered with it a little bit, you know, before, before I had the sexual assault incident, and things, you know, sort of took off in a negative direction for me. Uh, Because, you know, people in high school do that sometimes. But I definitely remember that, that moment where I sort of was like, well, I'm just going to drink because it's the thing that makes my body not have a panic attack.
4: Yeah. And ultimately, I think one of the things that is harder to let go of when we pursue this path this healing journey is, you know, the guilt and the shame. And my therapist often says, you know, at some point, you have to accept and see things from the perspective of you were doing what you needed to do in order to protect yourself. It may have not been the healthiest decision in terms of whether that was for my, for my case, alcohol or having some sort of behavior and my eating disorder bubble it it is still a protective mechanism and it is still something that helped us get through really hard times even though we were hurting ourselves so I kind of had to reconcile that with my own story of I was doing something that wasn't good for me but it's the only thing I could do to survive that particular day or that particular chapter of my life so in a way we are just helping ourselves in a very unhealthy weight, but it's still a survival mechanism, you know?
1: Absolutely. Well, I'm I'm also in recovery from an eating disorder. And so I feel feel like I developed several, you know, maladaptive coping mechanisms that were really survival instincts and survival Mm -hmm. techniques. It was sort of a way for me to intentionally disassociate. Yeah, those are all, you know, some of those are natural instincts that our brains do for us when we're in traumatic situations. And then sometimes those are just choices that we make that are coping mechanisms that are survival instincts.
4: At any point of your journey, because we got a, a synthesized version, did you talk to anybody about what had happened to you, the relationship with alcohol, the abuse that you had? How was sharing this with the world as you were growing up and as it was progressing?
1: It hasn't, actually. This is really sort of the first time that I've been talking about it publicly. I was on another podcast uh, recently talking about my journey into sobriety and talking about what I'm doing with Supernatural Recovery. And so I talked about it there, but integrating those experiences is actually a fairly new thing in my life that um, the gift of sobriety and a lot of heavy trauma therapy has given me. You know, I lived years of my life just saying, oh, I had an abusive boyfriend when I was younger. And that was the story that I, that I believed. Um, and then as more sober time came together, more memory started resurfacing. And then as I began talking to my therapist we realized, you know, how deep the trauma actually was and why um it was so difficult for me to get sober. And the reason that I tell that story is because my trauma and my addiction go hand in hand. I can't really talk about one without talking about the other.
4: Yeah, totally. And and you do have to honor that pace. Going back to that thing of not shaming ourselves, I, I, I know we we talk about burning the ships on this show a lot and saying, you know, just just tell people. You gotta tell people <laughs> and I I've learned that if you have to tell people that you are on a cleanse for six months and that's why you're not drinking and that's the only thing that you can say, then cool. Like whatever you need to say, although at some point we do need to address the root and address the truth that, like you said, becomes more and more clear. But I think that you saying that you had an abusive boyfriend instead of saying the radical truth is what you could do at the time, you know, and. Right. And it's neat to see how that's becoming something that you can share more openly about. As you said, this is one of the first times that you do. So, I mean, I hope you feel super proud of yourself. And and it, it's a lot of work. It's it's hard work. As you got more sober time, you said more memories came back and more clarity, which I think is the case for many people. And is that a trigger for you? Because for me, the more I see kind of my blind spots and what I didn't address. I get more brave because I'm doing the work, but at the same time I'm like, oh crap. Like now everything is so clear and so there and I cannot run away from it. Do you get feelings like that?
1: I mean, definitely. I it's definitely an awakening process. I mean, I've I would say that I've definitely had an awakening process through getting sober. And I think a lot of people have that same experience. And so, you know, the awakening process is like you have this clarity around oh this is the the radical truth i love the i love that phrase the radical truth about my trauma and then you go back even further and find the radical truth about you know my family of origin and these things that whatever it was that you needed to believe the truth is maybe something a little bit different and so i that can be difficult to reconcile with for sure
4: other than traditional therapy what else were you doing i mean what happened the night before your September 16th date? Did you just decide to stop and went on your own? Or how do you do this healing journey as Laura?
1: How do you do this healing journey? Well, I actually, I wrote a book about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and um, That's part of the supernatural recovery. I'm just I'll just go into just the four different parts. Um, There's foundations, which is caring for your physical body. So I started working with a practitioner who helped me get supplementation, nutrition, hydration, Exercise, like all of those things, so that my physical body could be cared for, which was really helpful during the withdrawal process and especially during the first couple of months. Next was trauma release. And, you know, that's done in a, a variety of ways. It can be done through body work, energy work, acupuncture, um, uh, plant medicines. There's just so many ways, and meditation, so many ways that you can, you know, deal with your trauma. Next is calming your nervous system. So I had to find new ways to calm my nervous system because of course I was still having panic attacks because all that trauma hadn't left my body yet just because I got sober and just because it was 20 years later. Um, So finding new ways to handle my body when my nervous system got activated, that's been a piece of the journey and just getting to discover these new things, getting to discover different ways to release trauma, discover different ways to calm your nervous system has kept me really curious. And it kept me sort of excited about staying sober. And then the last piece, which is ongoing and a practice, I think, that we all <laughs> that we could all use a little more of and cultivate a little more of is forgiveness and self-compassion, which I think is maybe the hardest part of all of it. But those are those are the main things that I sort of slowly cultivated over the last 18 months. And that's you know what I ended up writing my book about, um, because. Those felt like the four cornerstones of finally getting from a place, not just where I wasn't using alcohol or having an eating disorder, or other maladaptive coping mechanisms, but where I was really more emotionally stable and more autonomous and in charge of my life and being able to enjoy my life and no longer participating in uh, negative relationship patterns and things like that.
4: I love all of this. It's more of a holistic approach. And, and I know, you know, the sober movement is growing and the healing journey is 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 growing, like you said earlier, you can't talk about your trauma without talking about about your addiction. Everything is linked and everything goes back to doing the work internally, which looks very different for all of us. But I love these four I wanna call them pillars. I'm not sure if I'm using that word correctly and, and giving your work due diligence. But you mentioned curiosity. Did you just as you were getting sober, experimented with all these things like, Oh, I'm just going to meditate. I'm going to find someone who helps me with my nutrition. Like how did you get to discovering each of these things just by living them out yourself? Or did you talk to people about it? Well, a piece of it is
1: that I'm, I'm a part of the healing community in Austin. Um, mm-hmm. Since I do body work and energy work. I have, I have a lot of colleagues who are healers. So I know other body workers. I'm, you know, I know acupuncturists, I know chiropractors, I know energy healers. And so craniosacral therapist uh, and, and therapist as well. So I was able to reach out to people who I just knew, you know, in my circle of friends. And I realized that the more sort of work that I did, the more trauma I would release. And, you know, the better that I felt. And so that was a piece of it. And uh, yeah, just like staying curious and like, well, also trying to figure out what to do with myself, because when you're, you know, that heavy into addiction, you don't really do anything but drink like for fun. <laughs> so trying to find new ways to just live my life. Well, I'm sober. I don't have anything to do. I guess I'll go get a massage or I guess I'll try out, you know, whatever this new therapy is, sound therapy or, or something like that. So it was a process that was intentional in the me- in the way that like I was seeking it out as a means to sort of uh, distract myself or keep myself busy, <laughs> but also knowing that it was going to be doing good things for me.
4: Yeah, that's so awesome. I think that accepting and understanding that the solution can come from a lot of different things is key because, you know, some tools work sometimes, sometimes you need something else. And for me, I love connecting body work and the way that the body holds on to a lot of our stress and our trauma, connecting that to, you know, our recovery and our healing journey. I think I think it's key and I think it's very important. So I love that we're talking about this. How is, early sobriety for you, you know, how were those 30, 60 days, what was helping you stay in the decision to not take a drink? I
1: did, I did not have a pink cloud.
4: Hmm.
1: The first like 30, 60 days, I, I would say for the first like 90 days of sobriety, I cried all day, every day. I don't even know how I was functioning. I was crying so much and it was just like all this relief. But you know, the two things really that kind of kept me on the path were, I would hike every day, so I would spend some time outside and I would move my body. And I and I discovered this podcast. And of course, this is when Paul was hosting, but it was it was very grounding for me. And I joined Cafe RE. I don't really do social media, so I'm not really part of that anymore. But in the early stages, it was incredibly helpful for me, and I was able to just really be, you know, in a place where I was vulnerable and honest about how much I was struggling. Um, because for some people, it's like they quit and they just feel great. You know, and that's great. And I want to celebrate that, but that just wasn't my experience. And so being able to have that group to reach out to and say, like, I'm not feeling that. I'm not on a pink cloud. I'm incredibly depressed. I mean, it was just spending time outside hiking and listening to this podcast, honestly, were the two major things. And then I was about month three, I think, that I started doing yoga really regularly. And that was a turning point for me. That was when I stopped like crying all the time because my body had a new way to move all of the stress and trauma out of it. Uh, Because crying is one way, but, you know, yoga and movement is a a whole other. And that was a really big turning point for me. And then way down the line, once I started working with a somatic therapist, somatic experiencing is a wonderful therapy for people who are uh, trauma survivors. And those were kind of like signposts along the way of my healing journey that, you know, made me stronger and got me to be more committed along the way.
4: Yeah, there's so many emotional blockages, and there are different releases. I'm glad to hear that, you know, you were you were crying a lot for some for some folks. There's an armor that is so wrapped around our hearts and our bodies that it's almost hard to have those releases. So even though you didn't have that pink cloud, it's, it's good to hear you were processing. And I know we had this was back when Paul was hosting Sue Mortar was on and she, she talked a lot about energy and how energy gets clogged and stuck in our body and how that release is something we need to definitely work on and explore. So this is all great. I'm a big proponent of exercise for the same reason I, I just do it because I understand what it does to my physiology and my emotion. So I'm glad you got outside. I'm glad you were able to go on hikes. You know, it's a, it's a great way to also be in nature when you're when you're feeling all the feels and you just want to cry it out and you're just trying to make it sober through the day. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember the um the Sue Mortar
1: episode and I did read her book, The Energy Code. Anything that really speaks back to like the body mind connection and moving the stuff, stress and trauma through your body, I'm all about it. And that because that's a really a cornerstone of, of my belief and of my book and the way that I've been able to get sober. So I love that you mentioned her cuz I did enjoy her work a lot.
4: And I have a question, you know, every time I do talk about eating disorders and co-occurring disorders, we get a ton of questions and a ton of messages inquiring about this or saying like, "Oh, like I, I I'm not the only one." And I know you shared that you also struggled sure. with an eating disorder. Did you notice that when you decide to quit drinking and you got sober, the eating disorder behaviors started to kind of knock on your door or had that already been healed. Talk to me about the relationship between those two and the, and the healing of one and another. Sure. I mean,
1: I definitely feel like I played a little bit of addiction whack-a-mole.
4: Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that
1: phrase on this, on this podcast too. And so, yeah, they, they, they resurfaced a little bit. It wasn't, it never really got out of control, but it, I would, yeah, it definitely was kind of knocking on my door a little bit. Um, Just as a coping mechanism, again, it's, you know, my nervous system. When you have that level of trauma and you, without other coping mechanisms, like the more things that I've learned along my way, um, we kind of just fall back into these old patterns. And so it's like, well, this behavior will make me feel better, even if it's temporary and even if it's, you know, self-abuse. Which is really ultimately what I, what I feel like we're in recovery from when we've especially got more than like this comorbidity that's happening with an eating disorder and with an addiction it's it's self- abuse, and so anything that falls in line with that, I think will come up from time to time because healing isn't linear, you know sometimes it can feel like it's two you know step forward, two steps back or what is it? two steps forward, two yeah. step back. <laughs> And so just sort of knowing that, um, knowing that healing isn't linear. And so giving yourself that self-compassion and that space to have a bad day and to, you know, whether you act on it or just consider it, know that when those other coping mechanisms rise, it's um, just old patterns that are just asking to be released.
4: Yeah, totally. And it, it's just a symptom of an underlying thing or issue that probably hasn't been addressed. You know, for me, it's always it's always linked back to control. It's always like, well, now, if I'm not drinking, maybe I can go back to controlling food things. And to me, control, I've ended up realizing that it is a distraction when I don't want to go within I want to control external things. So it's it's a journey for sure. And, you know, I love that you mentioned that it has ups and downs. There's A lot of messy chapters on this journey. There are a lot of messy chapters in life, period, whether you're in recovery or not. And I think a lot of it is that that acceptance and that trust with within ourselves. Tell me a little bit more, Laura, about community. So how has community taken a role in your healing? Did you ever connect with other sober individuals when you started to get sober? What what role does community have in your healing?
1: Yeah, community is, is so important. I think just trying to connect, wh- whether it's with ourselves, with our source energy, with other people, all of those things do get disconnected along, um, along the journey in addiction. And so reconnecting to the world, other people, to yourself, into source energy is a really important piece of recovery. I, I sort of dipped my toe into the 12 steps, but ultimately realized that it wasn't for me. My community is really my yoga studio. My yoga studio in Austin does yoga and meditation classes. And so um, I've really been able to sort of dive headfirst with my teachers there and meet some wonderful people who are very like-minded. Some of them are in recovery. Some of them are not. But we're all you know, on a spiritual journey and all just trying to do the best that we can and meet ourselves with self-compassion. And so that's been a really um, important part of it as well. And then I mentioned too, you know, even though I'm not part of it currently in the very beginning, being a part of the Facebook groups of cafe re just really helped me feel like I was connecting with someone else who understood what I was going through.
4: Yeah. The community component also changes. Um, so, I mean, I'm glad you, you have people that you can connect with it. It is truly important. Do you still go to therapy? Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: yeah. I'm, I, um, I definitely am still in therapy. I started therapy actually about a year and a half before I got sober and I reached out to my therapist. Um, I, I found a wonderful therapist who specializes in working with impasse and high sensitives, which I am. And I reached out to her and I said, I want help. I'm an alcoholic and I want help getting sober. And we worked together for about a year and a half um, where I would have some false starts. I would have a couple of months of sobriety here and there before I was finally able to make it stick. And I think that that has been just an immeasurable asset to my healing, just because I am a survivor of some pretty deep trauma. That I think without that element of having a very you know patient and compassionate therapist, I may not have been able to get to the other side of it. And so I have just so much incredible gratitude for her.
4: Oh, I'm so glad, and I'm glad you you found a good fit. You know, I was just talking to a new therapist that my husband and I are seeing this morning, and I was telling her. You know, it's like with AA meetings. You know, I don't go to AA, but the people that try it once and then maybe don't like it, you know, you have to kind of shop around for the right person. It is kind of like dating, it has to be a good connection. Yeah. And uh, when people do find a therapist that they click with well and they feel like they're making strides, it's so valuable to maintain that relationship because, you know, it's not easy. Sometimes it is hard to find a therapist that, that, that feels like you can trust and that connects well with you. So I'm glad to hear that you found that.
1: Uh, Thank you so much. And, you know, she's actually really inspired me. I'm actually in grad school getting my master's in counseling.
4: Oh, that's so cool. What else has this journey made possible for you? I usually ask this question later on, but it's a great segue into it. it. I'm sure this is something you thought you would never do, and now you're doing it. Is there anything else that has kind of unfolded due to your decision to stay sober?
1: I mean... Yeah, like, and most of it does revolve around recovery and what I'm building with supernatural recovery. And, you know, the fact that I've written a book and that it's going to be published soon. um, All of that has, it's like, it's always been a lifelong dream of mine to write something and publish it. And so the fact that I've been able to accomplish that is really amazing. And, you know, because of uh, my PTSD, just getting my undergrad 20 years ago was a huge accomplishment, because I kind of, you know, made it through by the skin of my teeth. So, The fact that I'm going to school again and I'm getting my master's is, I think, surprising. Like, if I had asked myself five or ten years ago if I ever saw myself doing it, I definitely would have said no. And I've just grown so much as a person. I have such a better handle on my emotions and my emotional, you know, reactivity to situations where, as I feel like I used to be such an emotionally reactive person, being sober and through, you know, a lot of yoga and meditation and just a lot of self-work really have just become so much more solid. And now that I'm in a place that I want to offer other people that gift and help other people in their healing journey. And it's just really beautiful and I'm really grateful for it. And I'm really grateful to be able to be that for other people because I have struggled and I know how hard it can be. And so to be able to like be on the other side of it and be a person who can be helpful and be of service I think is just one of the greatest gifts that my sobriety has given me.
4: Yeah, service is a total gift. Do you still get cravings, Laura?
1: I do, yeah. What do you do? Um, well, I have a new thing. So I am I love fancy olives. <laughs> I mm-hmm. used to drink martinis. And so I, I will eat my fancy olives. When, in my early days when I was like, I like just felt like I wanted to drink, I would do this really weird thing where I would take a shot of apple cider vinegar. <laughs> Because it like kind of like burned in my body like it was alcohol, but it was just apple cider vinegar.
4: Hey, whatever um. works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: But you know, mostly it's just about like finding a way to calm my body, um, spending time in nature. I have um, a heavy bag in my garage that I'll go punch on sometimes because mm. it really is just about moving stuck energy. I find when you're having a craving, it's generally a desire to disconnect from your body. Maybe it's to disconnect from a negative experience or a negative emotion. And the medicine is always to stay present, right? If the, the disease is to disconnect and the medicine is to stay present. And so just finding a way to, to move the energy through physical movement or a lot of times I will use breath work can sort of get my nervous system to chill out. I remember who I am and then I don't have the craving anymore.
4: I'm going to have to ask you to say what you said a couple of seconds ago, which was the disease is to disconnect. And did you say the solution is to stay present?
1: I said the medicine. is The to stay medicine. Present.
4: Wow. That's beautiful. The <clears> throat> medicine. Throat> it, it's, it's a hundred percent true. And, and it's, <laughs> it's crazy how staying present sometimes is so much harder than doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, it totally is. And that's the thing that I found is,
1: especially in the early days just wanting to run and wanting to disconnect from my body from my experience from my you know feelings that were super overwhelming and learning how to stay present in your body it is a it's a practice and that's why they call it a meditation practice or a yoga practice because it's not something that you're just automatically good at and you have to sort of train your mind to be your friend
4: completely just like train your body to to breathe again when you're meditating even though we're breathing all the time but it's that mindfulness behind the behavior absolutely have you gotten any pushback or any weird reactions when you share with people that you're not drinking anymore i think that for the most part everybody in my life was very
1: relieved to see that i wasn't drinking anymore I've lost a couple of friends along the way who maybe didn't know how negatively it was affecting me or didn't know, you know, how, how deep it had gone. But, um, overwhelmingly I would say I have support because, you know, people would see that I wasn't really like a, I wasn't really like a happy, fun time Mm -hmm. drinking person, (laughs) you know what I mean? So I think, I think, generally people have just been happy for me and have been really proud of me because they know that it's been a struggle for a really long time.
4: Yeah, that's great. That's great to have that response from people of like, well, you're doing what's best for you and people can see this is probably the right decision. (laughs) Definitely.
1: Yeah. And like I said, I did lose a couple of friends along the way. And I mean, I think that that does happen on any uh, really, any awakening journey, but especially on a sobriety journey, there's just some people that can't come with you, and it's a bummer. But at the end of the day, you have to choose yourself.
4: Yeah, and I love that. I I um I just read a book that, that was talking about people that come into our lives and their purpose, and I think that has helped me um, because I think sometimes we create these deep-rooted attachments to certain people, and it is it is a blockage sometimes when it comes to deciding to quit drinking. And like you said, when it comes to choosing yourself, sometimes it's so much easier to choose other people and and it's scary. The thought of losing people is scary, but I think what has helped me is seeing that you know reframing into they had a purpose in my life that was probably already fulfilled and now you know just like kids have to leave the nest, it's now they maybe friends just have to move on to other things and I have to move on to other things and almost see it not as so black or white or like terminal, like it ended, you know, like, it's just it changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It changed. yeah.
1: no, I think that's really beautiful. And then also, you can sort of like let go with a, with a gratitude, rather than have there be any like bad blood between you.
4: Yeah, totally. Tell me, Laura, have you been able to identify any triggers that you have?
1: Let's see. I mean, for the most part, I feel like my triggers are um, emotional, mm-hmm. you know, um, but I also, if I get hungry, that's a really big one. And so that's one of the reasons I feel like the foundational work is so important, like caring for your physical body, making sure that, and it's like, we have to treat ourselves like toddlers, basically. Like, do you have snacks? Have you, mm-hmm. do you have, have you had water? Like, have you, do you need a nap? You know, and these seem like such basic things, but they go out the window when, if you're not taking care of yourself because maybe you're depressed or maybe you're drinking too much, that coming back in line with like how to physically care for your body is a really important piece of it. So definitely if I get hungry, I'm like, Oh God, I'm craving a drink. Oh, I just, I'm hungry, you know? And now it's been long enough that I can recognize that. And then, yeah, like if I get overwhelmed emotionally, I will still have this kind of knee jerk reaction that uh, just fuck it. I'm going to drink. It's like, what? Are you, of course you're not. Like just why are you even saying that? Mm-hmm.
4: <laughs> I love hearing the, you know, you're doing it for us in real time. I love that you have this banter within your mind of like the you that is not you and the you that is you, you know, this like, what, you know, this crazy thought, Who, what is this crazy thought? Bye. I'm, of course, I'm not going to drink. Like, it is so healthy to create that type of dialogue where we can, I don't know, accept that we may have crazy thoughts or crazy knee jerk impulses, but that that doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that they will come to fruition.
1: Absolutely. Well, that's the beauty of an awareness practice. And that's, that's really the greatest gift that meditation has given me is to have this separation between, you know, the reaction, and then like the knee jerk reaction, and then the actual reaction. So you have an awareness of, oh, I'm actually not going to drink. That's just a weird thought that I just had. And you can kind of let it go instead of attaching to it.
4: Yeah, that pause that sometimes feels like it's so hard to insert between, you know, a trigger and a, and a reaction, but it's totally possible. And like you said, it just takes practice. It's a muscle that needs to be worked.
1: Absolutely, definitely.
4: What does a day in your life look like nowadays, Laura? Well,
1: after I drop my daughter at school, I will usually go for a run or a walk. And then I will go in and take clients. So I, I you know, I love my job so much. I get to do body work, energy work, and facials with a wonderful group of clientele. And then I'll go to a yoga class if I can. And then I spend a little bit of time either, you know, editing my book or working on my website. And on the weekends, when my daughter is not with me, then, you know, that's kind of my social time. And I'll, I'll see if see if I can go for a hike with friends. Um, But I spend time outside as much as I can. That's
4: something that's really important to me. That's awesome. And I love that you are teaching your daughter, all of these things that we're talking about. You know, I, I. I struggle sometimes with wondering, Oh, man, you know, my kids gonna be okay. But what's that uh, saying that says, like, your kids will do what you do, not do what you tell them to do. So I often right. just find, find little solace in thinking, I mean, I'm trying my best to take care of myself and show all the emotions and do all the things. And that's all I can do, you know, be a be a model.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, i and just speaking of triggers, worrying, like, is my daughter going to be okay? Like, yeah, oh my gosh, that is such a big one. I think as a parent, it's just really challenging. Um, but absolutely being a model. And you know, so we meditate together, we do yoga together. And she sees like, too, that if I'm able to recognize, okay, Laura, like you're having a trauma response, or if I'm having some kind of emotional reactivity that is wildly disproportionate to what is actually happening. Then I'm able to take some space and sit under my weighted blanket Mm -hmm. and, you know, like listen to soothing music or do my breath work or whatever it is that I need in that moment to get myself back down to a baseline level. Um, And the fact that she has seen that work, um, I've seen it work with her, too, because when she starts to get upset, she'll actually start using some of these tools. And that does show me that, oh my gosh, like I am doing something right. Because we all need to know how to manage our emotions, you know? It's a life skill that we all need to know, and I think it's important to teach to children. Those are things that, you know, if we had learned when we were children, maybe we wouldn't have turned to drugs, alcohol, eating disorders, or like any other maladaptive coping mechanisms,
4: because we would have been able to
1: just regulate our emotions in a different way.
4: Yeah, my brain keeps turning on the idea of, some sort of prevention program or some sort of you know, like you're saying, emotion emotional regulation course or class or I, I just keep thinking, we have to get these people while they're young, you know, we have to talk to kids and all of these things that we don't learn at school that are beautiful life skills that we end up, you know, having to learn to meditate when you're thirty plus and it's like, oh, I can't even sit still. How do After we how minutes. do we do that at an earlier age? <laughs>
1: I love that. Well, and you know, I think too, I've, I often ha- have thought about speaking to kids and to teenagers about having autonomy over your body and about consent and about respect. Because I also think that those were conversations that were missed when I was growing up. And that's how mm-hmm. I ended up in some of the situations that I ended up in that were very traumatic for me. And so, you know, being able to talk about those things is also really important. So uh, as you know, the next generation can understand. A little bit better, and hopefully prevent you know more of these these types of traumas from happening, and thus like reducing mental illness across the board.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm really grateful to hear that because all of this work is you know we need we need to do it whatever it looks like, whether it it is a talk at a school, a talk with just our own kids, and that's all we can do. But it, it starts even it starts there with our own kids and having different conversations that maybe we didn't get to have. So I mean, it's so neat to see that you're thinking that way and wanting for people to not go through what you went through. So this is awesome. You'll have to let me know how that progresses if you ever make that into something bigger. Thank you. Yeah, that's I mean, it's sort
1: of just a dream that I have for now. I don't even know how how I would implement it just outside of the confines of my own family. But it's like you said, it does start at home. It starts with our own children. And those are, those are conversations that are important. I would love to be able to you know, to speak to a wider audience. Um, because I feel like I can't, I didn't just go through all that for nothing, yes. you know, and I went, I went through it, and I survived it. And it made me really strong so that I can help other people. And if I can prevent it, then that's even better than helping people heal who
4: have gone through it. Well, keep it on your vision board, Laura, I'm here for it. <laughs> <I> well, <laughs> thank you. When does uh, when does your book come out? So I'm in
1: the very final stages of editing. I I just, of course, want it to be perfect. Um, And then it's going to be published through the Balboa Press, which is uh, the division of Hay House. Mm -hmm. And so it's slated to be out within the next four to five months.
4: That's exciting. Please let us know when that comes out. Please send me a copy so I can read it and share it. And yeah, I'm super excited for you. I know that it's a lot, a lot of work, and I'm really happy you'll get to cross that bucket list item. Not a lot of people get to do that. Thank you so much. Yes, I
1: definitely will send you a copy. Um, I'm really excited about it. It's just this culmination of practices that I've learned and I feel like having them all in one place and being able to give them to somebody who, you know, doesn't know the way could be really helpful because there are other options. People, you know, a lot of times will just automatically gravitate towards the 12 steps because maybe they think that's their only option. But like I said, that didn't really speak to me um, and the way that I feel about my addiction experience. And so creating something new for people who are looking for a different direction, I feel like was really important to me. So I'm very, very proud of it. Um, And I'm so excited for it to be like widely available.
4: So excited. I can't wait to read it. Thank you. All right, Laura. Well, we've reached the rapid fire round. If you can answer these questions in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Yes, I am. If you could talk to younger Laura, what would you say to her?
1: I would say that it's going to be okay, and you are an incredible and very strong person, much stronger than you think, and you're going to get through all of this, and then you are going to help other people who have gone through it.
4: Beautiful. What's your favorite NA beverage? I drink Ken Euphorics. I don't
1: know if you've heard of that. Yes. Yeah, it's a good one. I like that one. Um, Because I I also, you know, I'm into supplementation. And so I like to take herbs to like help my body relax. And so I love that they've done that with, um, you know, a a liquid that you can sip like a cocktail.
4: Yeah, for those of you who haven't heard of it, it's a, a brand that makes these, yeah, I guess these mocktails, but they do add some adaptogens and herbs that are good for you. So it's a nice little mix versus just all the syrups, which sometimes there's a Place for that, but <laughs> it's good to have other healthier options as well. All right, next up, what are some of your favorite resources in recovery?
1: Well, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say Supernatural Recovery. Um, my website is supernaturalrecovery.org, where I do have some online classes, and of course, that's where you'll be able to buy my book in a few months. Cafe RE was a wonderful resource for me in the beginning, so I definitely want to shout out to that one as well. And then I just think the ancient practice of yoga is has also just been a wonderful resource for me.
4: What's an unexpected perk of being sober? Hmm. My skin. Hmm. Um being
1: able to look in the mirror and feel like, "Dang, my skin looks so good." Like I've looked at side-by-side photographs of myself from, you know, before I got sober and now and even like 30 days sober, just a difference in my appearance. You know, my eyes are brighter, my skin is just clear um and I think It just gives me a confidence overall that I maybe lacked when I was drinking.
4: What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about ditching the booze?
1: To have self-compassion for yourself. To know that it's not, the healing journey is not linear. And, you know, if you're trying and you haven't made it yet, just just to keep trying. And the more that you beat yourself up, like the harder it gets to get sober. So trying to practice self-compassion and then sobriety sort of follows. So if you can make self-compassion and self-forgiveness one of your top priorities, then treating yourself well and not engaging in self-abusive
4: behaviors will come naturally. And before we depart, can you give listeners your own You May Have to Say Adios to booze if line?
1: <laughs> I feel like I had so many good ones and I <laughs> couldn't remember any of them. But, but the one that I wrote down is, When the bottle is half empty and you go to the store because you're afraid of running
4: out. I mean, you want to be prepared.
1: (laughs) (laughs) If you still have half a bottle left and you're concerned about running out, um,
4: you might have a drinking problem. (laughs) The neat thing about that is that now that happens to me with my sleepy tea, you know, the box is still half full and I'm like, I need another (laughs) box of sleepy tea.
1: (laughs) I feel (laughs) that.
4: Oh, Laura, thank you so much. I'm so glad we got to do this. I can't wait for everybody to listen. Can't wait to read your book. I appreciate you and we'll be in touch. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Take care. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to once again say adios. Thank you to everyone that helped make season two of the Recovery Elevator podcast happen. Thank you to everyone that listened, that gave me an opportunity as I was transitioning into hosting. And thank you, Paul, for allowing me to be part of this beautiful project that you created. I still can't believe that I get to host. I still can't believe that I'm doing this and I'm 53 weeks in. So I'm humbled. And grateful and I wanted to make sure that I said it as we kicked off this new season excited for new changes excited for you guys to get to know Chris and really excited to also take a back seat and to get to listen to Paul with his intros you know that is the reason why I joined Recovery Elevator in the first place was I needed help I searched for a podcast Recovery Elevator came up and my life has been so different because of it. So thank you. And I can't wait to talk to you all next week. Remember that you're not alone and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.
2: Get out of the street story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? My response is always the same, burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings, and it's these feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.